Hello and welcome to episode 261 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Stateline, Nevada. I'm Nathan Fox with me and Ben Olson. Ben, you're in the woods somewhere. You're by the lake. Where are you? Yeah, I'm in Warm Springs, Virginia. I think, I can't remember the name of the lake, but it's really nice. It's clean, which is not always the case with the lakes I've been to in Virginia. I like Virginia, the wood paneling yeah. you have there on the wall behind you. That's that's very rustic. It's nice. And uh, Kelly Buckley, who is a uh, GW2L transfer. Kelly, you're home for the semester, though, in Wisconsin? Yes, that's right. Welcome to the show, Kelly. We're going to get to an interview with Kelly about her 1L year and uh, application process, transfer application process, what it's like to be a 2L virtually going to law school in COVID times. We've also got a Pearl versus Turd uh, with a Logic Games tip. We have a question about going part-time or not. We have a question about whether to write an addendum for a last semester GPA drop. And we have an update from Gap Year Curious Beth. This show is going to air on Monday, August 31st. If you're hearing this, you are uh, on the launch date. It's in the middle right now of the August LSAT Flex testing week. Good luck, everybody. A couple upcoming dates that are important. September 23rd is the deadline to register for the November LSAT. Again, ridiculously far in advance of the actual testing week. They did announce yesterday... Moved up. It was moved up seven days. So, <laughs> so <laughs> they announced it yesterday. Yeah, that the November test is going to be a flex. Um, that's not any surprise to anybody. But also moved the deadline up for registration. Great, um, because it takes longer, Ben, to arrange an online test than it does <laughs> to arrange an in-person test. Uh, yeah, it's more resource intensive. You know. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Uh, October 3rd is the start of the October LSAT Flex testing week. If you're not already signed up for that, it's too late. The November LSAT Flex is going to start November 7th. Again, the registration deadline for that is September 23rd. You can email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. Leave us a review on iTunes if you uh, like the show and you want to introduce it to other people. One of the best things you can, I mean, you can tell a friend for sure, but one of the best ways is to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. All right. Kelly Buckley. Ben, you know Kelly better than I do. Kelly took your class in D.C. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking that was the summer of 2018. Is that right, Kelly? That's right. I feel like you were in that class, too, that was at GW in that big auditorium. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember you sat up uh, like to the to the <laughs> right, on the right side. Yeah, With, yeah. I, so anyways, yeah, everybody kind of stakes out their seats, right? And then they just stay there for the whole semester generally. But that was that was a fun class. Um, I think it had like 65 people in it or something. So that was that was crazy. But so you went to school and then you transferred to GW, which I, of course, have some affinity for. And then you reached out and you were just saying thank you or something. And then you, I said, come on the show. Is that what you wanted out of that thank you? Probably not. I wasn't really sure, but I thought that I should at least give you a shout out since you yeah. you were kind of my Sherpa through the entire application process. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever called me a Sherpa, but I'll take it. How many episodes of the podcast did you listen to, Kelly, when you were en route to law school? Ooh, I would say at least 50. 
I remember there was one where Ben had, there was like the lawnmower was always coming back and it was all, and so then you had to change your location or something. Yeah. Well, that's probably mine. I, I used, <laughs> yeah. I used to have the crazily aggressive yard workers going. I was like every day they were out there mowing the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. I heard yesterday, Ben, from somebody who said that they had listened to all, every episode of the show three times. They had listened all the Whoa. way through three times. I was like, do I call the cops or do I just like <laughs> start running for it right now? Or what do I do? Nah, we appreciate was, did it. Did they so. provide any rationale or are they just, just dropping that? Yeah, yeah. No, it was basically like they listen at work. They just put it on and listen at work. You know, they're not like yeah, really yeah. listening. They just have it on for some company in the background at their awful law firm job. Um, yeah. So, hey, Kelly, why... Why law school? Did you always know you wanted since kindergarten? Did you want to go to law school? I was not. Um, that was actually in preparation for the conversation with you guys today. I was thinking about it. I never in a million years wanted to go back to grad school, and so I was in moved to DC after I graduated from the University of Wisconsin um, with a bachelor's in East Asian Studies and Chinese, and thought that I wanted to go the international relations route, um, but then quickly realized. Everybody in D.C., I think it's one in three in D.C. have a JD. And then decided in January of 2018 that I was going to take the LSAT in September. Found Ben's class and then spent those summer months studying and and haven't looked back. I'm really happy that it worked out. So you're you're at law school now and you're you're still happy with your decision. I am surprising. That's good. That's great. No, I mean, that's, you know, um, some people are, and we're happy to help those people get there. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, don't end up being happy. So I'm glad to hear that. You had to kill it, Kelly, in your 1L year. Most people aren't able to transfer. What did you do to succeed in the 1L year? And then I guess you can get into the transfer story. So one, another shout out to strategy prep with Ben in DC. I had a really strong group of friends out of that class. And one of them ended up going to Catholic with me. Catholic's a really small school. So it was a really small community. She and I are still friends and we had a great group um, of girls. And I would say that my key takeaways were just going in and try to be as happy as possible and like take each day with a genuine curiosity for each subject, because there's a lot of room for people to start competing with each other and like gasping. I don't know. It's like everybody reverts to high school, that one L first semester. Yeah. And so I think, I think I really benefited from Catholics, just the community and, and as a foundation, because it was so small, everybody was really willing to help each other out. I was in a different position I started thinking about transferring pretty early on because I had some family obligations in Wisconsin. And so I looked at their application and sort of decided, okay, I'll just give that a shot. And as you guys probably know this, but most schools won't accept transfers until you have your spring grades. So it was one of those things that I just punted then to second semester, but was able to get most of my application done have those difficult conversations with professors for recommendations, even first semester. Difficult because you're leaving. Yeah. And they're just, some schools require you to meet with the dean 
And some professors will refuse to write reference letters for you unless they know your LSAT and they basically want your blood type and your retina scan before they'll vouch for you. Um, and I've, I've heard a lot of rumors. Some friends of mine have said certain things about certain professors, but lower tier schools don't want you to leave. And so, of course. Right. Yeah. And so that was a little hard. And then there was a lot of stigma attached, like from the two L's and three L's. I felt like, oh, you're not going to be, because Catholic is kind of a feeder into other schools in DC. Um, I think American is even becoming more like that. Yeah. They, <laughs> they want you to stay at their lower ranked law school with them. They don't want you to go to higher levels and achieve more they want you to stay i mean it's not like they don't genuinely also like you and and you know it's not like they're not going to genuinely miss you but when it comes to like the administration or the professors or whatever i mean they're just (laughs) it's all about money and it's all about the prestige of the school and if you leave then you're going to go kick ass at gw instead of kicking ass at Catholic. Um, did they, so when you got, did you only apply to GW for transfer? No, I, so I applied to Wisconsin and I was admitted. Uh, so okay. I was packing, I was selling all my things in DC, getting ready to move to Wisconsin. And, uh, honestly, again, Ben's advice in the back of my head, go to the school, go to the school where you want to practice. And I was just yeah. sort of torn. And I know that I want to end up back in DC or just on the East coast in general. So I had applied to Georgetown. I didn't get in. And I applied early. I think it's their early action. So back in February, March, uh, didn't get in. And so then I kind of started to just accept Wisconsin was it. Then I spoke to a friend and they said, well, have you thought about GW? And I was, to be completely honest, like kind of resistant to it because I felt like, well, I shot my shot with Georgetown. It didn't work out. So now this is the only alternative. So I applied late to GW after their application had closed. I think a lot of this is under the, with COVID, everything has just kind of been thrown out the window Mm. in terms of. What, what are the typical deadlines for transfer students? End of June, early July. I think Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. few schools have end of July. Like George Mason has end of July 31st. I think BU has July 31st. Yeah. So, but GW is closed, I think June 15th and I applied in August and then two weeks later got in, but, and I'll caveat this for other folks that are thinking about it because I didn't, uh, apply early. I wasn't able to do write on competition. So I wasn't able to do journal or our law review, which is a bummer. Or lucky you. I mean, now you don't have to do journal. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the shit ton of work for, uncertain benefit um did uh so did catholic try to offer you money to stay did you think about negotiating did you think about taking the money that's a really good question so i had a really nice uh generous scholarship for my first year uh and which is part of the reason why i went there and and when i had my acceptance from wisconsin i asked them to bump it uh fifteen thousand more and which would have helped with living expenses and they said no. And they said in years past, we probably would have said yes. Um, I have heard from other friends who got into higher ranked schools 
leaving Catholic that they were offered more money. Uh, so I don't know if it was just that I didn't get into Georgetown or Northwestern or one of the others. I did say at the time, if I got in to, you know, wherever, and then Catholic came back and said, Oh, we want to give you a full ride and do all then I would have stayed, but that wasn't in the cards. And so, but I think it's so important to negotiate. It's such a hard conversation to have. And the earlier you start having it, the better you are and creating a habit too, even in terms of like for your professional experience. Yeah, that's a good point. Build that muscle now. I was yelling at my class last night. I was like, listen, if you're not asking for application fee waivers and if you're not asking for LSAC uh, report fee waivers, ask for both of those things and just start practicing now because that's what you're going to do as a lawyer is ask a million annoying questions to people. And like, if you can't advocate in that way, such an obvious, easy way. If you can't do that now, then what are you going to, how are you going to help your client? So did they, um, once you actually told them that you were really leaving, was there any like post negotiation negotiation? No, they were just like, sorry, that's sad. Bye. Yeah. 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 I have heard a rumor that a third of, so we were at like 150, 155, a third of my class transferred out. So wow. That's a significant, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of revenue. <laughs> Even though you got a scholarship, you're still sounded like sending them some money. So, what what are what are the kinds of things that they're looking for in a transferee? Because you know, when you're applying to a school, we of course have to worry about the LSAT, GPA, and personal statement, and then secondary is like resume and stuff like that. But what are they looking for when you apply to GW? Can I guess? Yeah, grades. Grades are most important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's it. I mean, that's that's what. Do they even ask for your LSAT score? I think only because you have to do it through LSAC, so you have to disclose that in the okay. that initial application. But no, otherwise, no. It's interesting. So I guess they don't have to report your LSAT score to U.S. News and World Report ranking, even if you're a transfer student. No, because they're only reporting the stats for the incoming one L class. Uh, I didn't know. I thought they would keep those stats. I thought U.S. News, if I were U.S. News, I'd want to know each of the three years because that tells a picture or a story as well. But anyways, okay. I'm sure folks that listen know this, but I found uh, universities' uh, 509s reports uh, the Mm -hmm. most helpful because you could go in and you could not only see what their 1L class had brought, but also the transfers. So they have have a little box all the way at the bottom of the (laughs) report and it highlights what the average GPA was. If I think it's over more than eight people that transferred in, and then it also says how many people transfer out. So not knowing this, going into the process, thinking it was only going to be Wisconsin, people started saying, suggesting that I apply to Georgetown because Georgetown uh, and Fordham actually are two of the schools that accept the most transfers. And I think that's because they're also feeders into the T14. Ah, they're losing people. Mm -hmm. So I think Georgetown had, I think they had, on average, they have 100 transfers each year in, which is a class at some schools. Wow, that's huge. So then where are people going from these top schools? Are they just leaving or are those classes just getting bigger? I'm not sure. I have a good friend who transferred from Cornell to Harvard. So I think it's, if you're in that sort of rat race mentality already, you're probably just going bumping up. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. There's going to be some attrition at the top 
school, at every school, you know, people get mm-hmm. sick, people get a girl in my class at Hastings got pregnant and decided she didn't want to finish. People decide that they just have other stuff they want to do with their lives. So there is going to be some, just some attrition that they're going to fill up. Might also be because of clinics and externships and electives and whatever, you know, they're not just jamming people into one room to take contracts or whatever in your 2L and 3L years. They might just be able to accommodate more students potentially. Yeah. And that's more revenue for them in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it doesn't show up on their 509s, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're like, that actually is a strategy for an elite school is to, to have like tighter admission standards for your 1Ls. And then accept a lot of transfers because it's just like free money and it doesn't hurt your uh, doesn't hurt your ABA numbers doesn't hurt your public data and your risk is lower right I mean if because they've someone, already succeeded yeah yeah like actually can you do well in law school I said that was a strategy for an elite school but no that's a perfect strategy for some just middling school that's what they should totally do right like Catholics should shrink the size of their one L class and then start taking transfers from you know, just whatever schools that are ranked 150th in the country or whatever, take a bunch of transfers, make a bunch of money. And we know that they're successful law students. That's what we'll do then when, when you finally do start John Roberts, you can just be like transfers only. (laughs) We accept. (laughs) We accept one one out of a thousand applicants every year. They get a 180. It's like, oh, great average. Cool. Ben, are you going to let me help you when you start John Roberts Law School? Do I get to be on your brain trust? Um, of course. <laughs> Am I going to have to send in my <laughs> resume? <laughs> yeah, and your official score report. Yeah, writing sample. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kelly, we don't want to take up your whole day, but you were a very successful 1L. Uh, do you want to give some tips for how to succeed as a 1L? Yeah, sure. I'm really glad, speaking from personal experience, of course, that I took some time and actually worked. I think I came in with as a much more intentional student. Wait, you're a non-traditional student? No, I said intentional student. Sorry. I know, but you're you took a few years to work before you went to law school. God forbid. <laughs> Yeah. You're older. I know. <laughs> How many years did you take off before you went to law school? Almost five. Holy shit. I know. Were you feeling like <laughs> super stressed out about I am being now. <laughs> all of twenty six when you were applying to law school? Yeah. I just yeah. I think it, it you just keep your calm kind of a little bit more because you're just thinking like all these people are just going bananas and it's a test. However, that is not, I was going bananas too, but (laughs) (laughs) because it's residual too. That's the, that's one of my pieces of advice is especially first semester, either make a really, really solid group of friends, which I was fortunate and had that so we could keep each other sane. And so you're freaking out. And also just, there's no shame in, in DC, at least I would go home after class and I would just rock out at home and not be in the library where everybody else can compete over whether or not they finished the reading yet. Okay, so a couple just genuine tips that I wish that I had had somebody tell me. Because when I asked for advice, everybody just kept saying, oh, relax. Get beers with friends. And and try to just leading into your first 1L, um, your first year of law school. But I regret not taking advantage of 
Catholic, I think it was through Cali at the time, but it was sort of like a crash course into your doctrinal courses. Um, like civil procedure, I did not. I did not. I didn't even know what it was. And um, I also, mm. this is embarrassing. I didn't even know that there were two tracks in law school. That one was litigation, one was transactional. Like that is how little I knew about the legal profession. Well, wait, that's that's kind of interesting because some schools, I, I don't feel like GW emphasizes that. In fact, if you want to go transactional, I think they might encourage you to explore, you know, classes that might help you with litigation just so you're like a more well-rounded student when you leave because you're going to get plenty of experience in litigation or transactional drafting if you go one route or the other. So that's interesting. So you're saying Catholic kind of steers their students in one direction or the other. I think it's due to resources and just professor availability. Like I've noticed mm-hmm. just in the difference in my first week at GW, all the electives, the resources that are available that weren't at Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But Quimby, I was, I thought, why am I going to spend any money on Quimby? I don't need it. Wish I had gotten it. I have it for 2L. Tell, tell our listeners what Quimby is. So I've just had my first free trial, so I'm still navigating it. But it's mm. kind of a catch-all. Um, in ter- they have briefs, just like LexisNexis does, too, their case briefs. Um, mm-hmm. I relied on those heavily my first semester of 1L the Lexus ones. Uh, but Quimby is great because it also has little videos and actually in terms of like passive learning too, it's, it's entertaining. Um, there are other study aids that are available too that I haven't dived into, but the briefs are amazing. And in my opinion, again, superior to the ones on Lexus, but I was, enter- I was leaving my job going into law school, didn't have any money. So I was just Taking whatever was free and available, I didn't want to spend the extra money on Quimby. They also have, I think, outlines available. And so does Barbary. I had a free subscription to Barbary my first year at Catholic, and I thought that that was really helpful. So that was another thing. If if the earlier you know that you're going to law school and you know where you're going, to reach out to the librarians or maybe the dean of students, whomever it would need to be, and find out what access your school has and just making if you're somebody like me kind of type a little nutty and has no background in the material and you just want to kind of do some sort of a just tip of the iceberg just start familiarizing yourself with like the core classes that you'll be taking that first semester i didn't know what a holding was even it's a whole new it's a whole new vocabulary for so many people i mean i went from econ which was mostly math to like what the hell is going on here um but it, it, what kind of blows my mind as you're talking about these resources is it takes me back to uh, the books that we could buy that were third-party books. It's like law school doesn't engage in any sort of teaching. They just engage in like debate and you've got to take it upon yourself to get familiar with what is that case actually saying. It's like almost beneath the professors to take the time to be like, well, this is what's actually happening. I just want They just want to dive into the nuance and – it tosses people around because they have no idea uh, how it fits into the bigger picture. That's exactly. I, that's also what Quimby has is for the concurrences and the dissents. It actually breaks those down and has little summaries of those too. And I found 
professors, especially second semester of 1L and and now even this first week, they want to get into the back and forth and they want to know, okay, Mm -hmm. well, if you're a police officer and it's a fourth amendment, well then how, as the prosecutor, what would you be doing? And then what would the defendant? And I just didn't know. So Quimby is a great tool just to kind of have in your back pocket. And they also have, I think, podcasts and little lessons that my friends would listen to on the Metro going to going to school. The other kind of big piece is meet with professors. I don't think anybody told me that. Catholic was a small school, so we had I had plenty of opportunity to stay after class and ask questions. But do take advantage of that because it's not going to be the career office at your school that's going to help you get a job. It'll be your professors and kind of who they know. Um, and the earlier you start having those conversations, other opportunities like research assistant, that sort of stuff may open up. That's a, I just interviewed Mike, a, a former student. He said the same thing. He got his job through one of his professors. So uh, that's interesting. Now I'm wondering, um, like, you did all this work and you must have gotten good grades. If you're willing to share, like how high were your grades and how high do you feel like they needed to be to transfer to a place like GW or Wisconsin? Like what, where in the class do you have to end up? I would say this is a great piece of advice that I got from one of my professors at Catholic. He said, if you're in the top 10 to 15% of your class right now, stay. Because those same opportunities will be available to you if you're middle of the tier at a higher ranked school, like a GW Georgetown. Um, but he said, if you're not in that top 15%, consider leaving because you'll just have that name recognition and it'll be easier to get your foot in the door through alum or networking. So that was sort of the calculus that I had. I was not in the top 15%. Because of COVID, we ended up not having rankings. So I don't know where I ended up falling, but I'm happy to share. Like my GPA was a 3.3, which isn't great. Um, And in part, this semester was kind of crazy, but I was shooting for higher grades and my first semester grades were decent. So, um, oh, one thing that I forgot to mention at the earlier when we were talking about it, most transfers, you're not going to receive scholarship. That's just kind of a blank. If you do, it'll be 5000 maybe 10000 but it's nothing. So that was something else to kind of consider before you start going down this rabbit hole. Yeah. So that's interesting. I guess I would have assumed that you would have had to be in the top 15% of your class to be successful at transferring, but it almost sounds like no. Well... She might not be that far away either. I mean, 3.3 sounds low, but 3.3 is an A minus average. And most law schools are going to curve around a B plus. Oh, wait, sorry. No, 3.3 is a B plus average. Oh, okay. So maybe you're right in the average average. I average. Average average. Oh, I'm wrong. But wow. Okay. But you did better in the first semester. And that's when they were really making the transfer decisions. Yeah. I think Um, had COVID... hmm not happened, I maybe would have had a better shot even at Georgetown. But I also think because I'm an untraditional student, I have that work experience. And so what I have also heard is that law schools, especially admissions, are looking at one, are you going to stay in this area and actually make us look good? And then two, can you actually get a job? And so I've been told your resume kind of speaks for it. Um, so maybe that also kind of helped push me over with the 3.3. 3. 
Yeah, pure speculation, but I mean, I th- I would think that that might even be more true now than before because recessions in the law tend to happen after recessions in the broader economy. And so they could be thinking like, oh my God, we have this disaster about to happen in 2022, our graduating class, like, or 2023, whatever, our graduating class is going to be like dying to, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be a horrible job market for lawyers potentially. And so they could want people who are a little bit older, work experience, connections, you know, they're, they're like, well, Kelly will be able to get a job around here. And, um, some of these 21 year olds won't. So interesting. Anything else, uh, tips for one L or anything else you need to talk about? I'm sure you've got, uh, you're, you're in the thick of your first semester already of your two L year. What classes are you taking this semester? I am in uh, legislation and regulation, which is a requirement at GW. I think more and more schools will start requiring it. Um, I'm in the art of lawyering because I'm also clerking um, with the Senate this semester. And the, what else am I in? Criminal procedure, which I love. Um, And counter intel law and policy and international investment and arbitration. Wow. A lot of... As, like interesting topics. That's the one thing about GW is they have a lot of adjunct professors from the area, right? Who do nothing but teach one class. And I like them because they were actually practicing, right? Like some academic professors. Oh, it's just like, do you have any clue what you're talking about when it comes to? For sure, I can't agree with that enough. I mean, all of my not not all, but all, all but like one of my best professors at Hastings were the adjuncts. The full professors were, I mean, the ones who were just there doing research were so boring. Same with you, Kelly. I a hundred percent, and that just goes to show, like the professors are the ones that you want to kind of be networking with too, because they're the practitioners, they're in the field, mm-hmm. they can help you, you know, navigate that next step. Um, but yeah, no, I just wish everybody good luck who listens to the podcast and you're doing the right thing by listening to the podcast. So obviously it worked out for me. <laughs> and also, oh, that was one other tip of advice that I got from a mentor in, who actually went to GW too. She recommended always reaching out on LinkedIn to folks especially if you are thinking about going to a specific school. So when I thought I was thinking of transferring, I started reaching out to, I went to Wisconsin for undergrad. So it's huge. Um, and people have gone to all different kinds of law schools, but they want to help you. So don't has, I guess my advice to either an incoming one L or somebody thinking about law school or somebody thinking about transferring, like reach out to people because also lawyers want to help, at least in my experience, other lawyers because it's like we're going through the same sort of struggle so i guess i say that too if i can ever help anybody else who listens my door is always open yeah that's super nice of you kelly but even for um totally self-interested purposes you know I, i think i've said this before on the show but I try to connect to all of my LSAT students on LinkedIn. It's real casual. It's real easy. It's, you know, it's, it's a business connection thing. And like 10 years later, I have a student who's like, Hey, I would like to meet an alum from GW. And I go into my LinkedIn and I'm like, Oh, well, let's see, we've got Ben Olson and we've got Kelly Buckley and we've got whatever. And if we haven't been in touch in a while, then I get to take this student they're going to benefit from meeting a GW 
alum, but I'm going to benefit because I get to reconnect with you. And then it's like <laughs> you win because you meet a young lawyer who, who knows, you might be looking to hire somebody at some point. And it's just like a win, win, win to do that kind of professional networking. And it's so easy on LinkedIn. I know I sound like I'm selling LinkedIn, but it's... <laughs> It's just no too LinkedIn easy. is it, people. It's an underused resource for so many opportunities. Yeah, completely. Um, so you do have a LinkedIn, Kelly. Do you want to shout that out or? Um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I can look it up. We yeah. can put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, no problem. That'll be a good way for people to connect with you. Cool. Um, we're going to move on with the rest of our agenda. But uh, so, Kelly, if you want to stick around and um, do some news with us, you're more than welcome to. But if you've got to get back to work, that's totally fine. Up to you. Good. It was nice chatting with you guys. Awesome. Thank you. Great that's Kelly, you, Kelly Buckley. Yeah. She's a 2L at GW Transfer. Um, thanks, Kelly. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Uh, pearls versus turds time, Ben. Yeah. Let's jump in. So this one says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I love the podcast. I have one pearls versus turds and a question for you guys. Pearls versus turds first. I came up with a strategy for sequencing logic games and I'm wondering if you, what you think of it. When a question asks you to put six or more things in a sequence, I draw a vertical line in between slots about in the middle to help me more easily see which slot is which. I do this instead of writing the slot number underneath each slot. For example, if I have to order seven things, I will put a small vertical line between the fourth and fifth slot. It makes it easier to distinguish between the slots since I can use the line as a reference point. For groups of six, I would put the vertical line between the third and fourth slots. Thoughts. Oh, I do that all the time. So I endorse that. I just, it's like you're breaking up the game, but I usually do it not on like, it feels to me like you're, you're just taking a set of six slots and you're dividing it in half. I would do it based on a rule. Okay. Exactly. Because like, I've seen you do it, Ben, when it's okay, there's six spots and W has to go in the first three. Mm-hmm. Then you can mm-hmm. draw a line between the th- the three and three and put W on or floating in the air is how you do it yep. on the left yep. side of of yep. the of the thing. This tip that's not what that says. That that just says yeah. I draw a vertical line in between slots about in the middle to help me more easily see which slot is which. But I, yeah. I, well, what if there's five slots? What if there's seven slots? I'm very confused. I mean, so she says, for example, if I have to order seven things, I will put a small vertical line between the fourth and fifth slot. Yeah, that's a. S- <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, okay, so she's got four on the beginning and three at the end. I, I know. That's why I'm like. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I, I got a little excited here, but I, I do I do do this, but it's based on rules. So I guess I would use it for rules. Yeah, I think if you're doing it based on one of the rules of the game, sure. But if you're doing it just based on the slots, I can see it making sense to divide six in half or divide eight to divide eight in half. But I can't imagine this being useful to divide five or seven or nine it doesn't that's this is not my brain is rejecting this idea my my brain put this directly into the turd pile you you had it as a pearl but you were thinking about 
a rule that gives you a reason to do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine telling people to do this independent of a rule. Mm-hmm. We could amend Sarah's tip to say, based on a rule, divide the game into two. Yeah. I think it does. It, when I do that, it makes it much easier for me to quickly see, oh, things do fit there or don't fit there. But that's because I know, yeah, like W is assigned there or a block TR cannot go before that thing. Right. And so I know it's stuck in the back. I think it's useful if it's merged <laughs> the, with something the, else. Yeah. The point is you're incorporating one of the rules. You're incorporating mm-hmm. a rule into the into a visual solution to the game so that you don't have to think about that rule anymore. You just can see, oh yeah, W has to go in these spots or W has to go in those spots. And, and, and so you're incorporating the information, yeah. arbitrarily slicing it based on some, you know... She, she literally said, in between slots, about in the middle, to help me more easily see which slot is which. And and she seems to present this as, as an alternative to writing down the numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't normally write down the numbers because I feel like if there's six spots, I can pretty easily glance at it and tell where the fifth or third or whatever spot is. For sure. But to push back on that, I mean how long would it really take you to write one, two, three, four, five, six? If you're, if you're worried about it at all, you could write that at the top of the page once and just be done with it. So it's not like it's even going to save, it's not saving time, right? Like saving five seconds is not what we're trying to do. Well, and I would argue too that I, I don't usually write numbers, but if I ever do, I write, the first one and the last one. And that's, I, it's enough to see in from right. the side, oh, that's five or that's four or whatever. And right. there, that's like two seconds too. I would much rather see you clutter up your diagram with rules and just use the number at the beginning and at the end if you have to use numbers. Well, it takes two votes to get a pearl, and uh, I'm not voting for pearl. So I'll let you decide if you want to go tie or turd. It's, it's up to you. I'm going to go with Ty because I, I like that this is close to something that I do. It's just not. Also, Ben's not on quite vacation. There. He's feeling nice because he's, he's in vacation nice. mode at the lake. <laughs> so we're now up to eight pearls in the history of the show, 35 turds <laughs> and 18 ties. Uh, most of the ties are leaning Which we all know are. The yeah, they both start pile, with yeah. T. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to her question. You want to read that? So, Sarah, yeah, Sarah says, so now my question. For the logical reasoning section, I have a question about going back to review questions. Okay, turd. Um, thanks so much for your help. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> ever do not tell go people back to, to go rec- back. Yeah. Well, I think she's saying, um, oh, I thought she was talking about just during review. But no, she's talking, oh, during the section. That's what yeah. I think. But hold, let's uh, let's go ahead yeah. and read it. I was kind of joking, but okay. yeah, I never go back during the section. But anyways, currently when I'm taking the logical reasoning section, I go through each stimulus, try to determine the flaw, and then find the answer choice as you guys suggest. However, sometimes despite spending good time on a question, I'm still not 100% confident in the answer. Instead of staying on that question, I move on and write down the question number to revisit later. Oh, yeah. No. I be- nope. I believe that taking a fresh look at it later will help me identify something I may have missed on my first attempt. Is this a good idea or a bad idea? For reference, I'm scoring in the high 160s on my practice test, and my performance is relatively even across the three sections. I would say 
If you're not sure, you're almost certainly down to two. Pick whichever one you think is best. Commit to that, and then move on. And if if you're doing that a lot, you're going too fast through the section. If you have time to go back at the end, you're going too fast through the section. I get it. There's going to be one or two questions where you're not 100 percent sure about. Pick an answer. You're done. That's it. Yeah, it's a frantic way of doing the timed section. You're 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 sending yourself the message that you need to race the clock. You're constantly like, got to move on, got to move on, got to move on, got to move on. I'm not done with this question yet, but I'm going to write down a number that takes some time and I'm going to move on. And then on the next question, I'm going to remember that I have this list of other questions that I have to go back to. So then I have to make sure that I race through all of these remaining questions in the section. Of course, some of those I also won't feel confident about. So I'll write down the number for those ones as well. Then I'll finish the section, finish in scare quotes, the section, because you didn't actually finish it. What you did was you half asked five of the questions, get to the end, then go back to the first one. And even when you go back to the first one, you're still remembering, oh, I have these other four that are on the list that I have to go back and review those ones again. Mm -hmm. And so here's the thing. Even if your hypothesis is correct, that taking a fresh look at it later will help you identify something you may have missed on your first attempt. You're ignoring the cost of doing this, which is this distraction and anxiety. And you're just, even if it helps you get that one, right. The one that you flagged, it might make you miss two other ones where you think you were confident, but you really weren't because you were just kind of skating through, you know, like skimming the surface so that you could finish so that you could go back so that you could then actually finish. Um, I just can't disagree with that idea enough. Uh, I would much rather you just go through once forward to back and just get as close as you're going to get, answer the question and then let go of it and move on. Hey, so Sarah has an update for us. She says, I took the LSAT and got a 174 exclamation point. Too bad my undergraduate GPA is a 3.54. Congratulations on the 174. I I have to speculate here. So she says she's scoring in the high 160s. And maybe she broke into the 170s before she took the LSAT, but I wonder if this is just a function of the flex yet again. <laughs> right? Well, it could also be that she kept studying and her skills increased. Oh, and for sure. Yeah. So I don't mean to detract from all your efforts and so forth, but I just, I'm surprised by how many people we hear scoring on the upper end or the highest end yeah. of their range. Yeah. With the flex test. Simultaneously though, we're also hearing people just killing it in the demon. And so, mm, it, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it could, Like I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, how many more students are going to tell me that they've improved already by 20 by, by 20 points on the demon. Yeah. And it was like, I I legitimately had the the thought, like, did we like crack the code of the LSAT? Like, are we, (laughs) it's like, we're going to shut down the LSAT because it's people are improving by so much. It's Mm -hmm. obviously self-serving of me to say that, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. again, just because I'm biased does not mean that I'm wrong. And like people are just absolutely killing it on the LSAT prep. So um, it could be that. I I do think it's a lethal combination. I know I've said this a million times, but the way it serves up questions is based on studies that have been conducted in a wide range of fields. And you combine that with 
our explanations, which focus on an intuitive understanding of the test, not a, you know, formulaic one, those two things together. Yeah. I, yeah. I have, I believe that's the best. That's why we're doing yeah. what we're doing. But I mean, there's a third thing too. Like there's this synergy in mm. the community that we've built. I've like my classes, my, my zoom classes are so much more effective than my live classes ever mm. were. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not just because of the demon. I mean, it's definitely the chat the demon. and stuff too, but the chat is fucking incredible. I mean, yeah. people are like, I'm going off on my, you know, lesson slash stupid tangent about whatever I want to joke about right in class. Mm -hmm. And then, and simultaneously people, people are like asking questions and getting responses Mm-hmm. most without good, interrupting because you know. it's no it's chat it's silent yeah. no i yeah. don't have to yell at the kids for chatting in the class which i used to have to do you know like mm-hmm. hey in the back i can hear you could you please not do that and and instead now there's this chat that's going on where it's silent and yeah i scan it and sometimes people say stupid things and then i have to call them out for it and say like well no actually that's not correct i'm mostly though the students will actually self-police it right because i've got mm-hmm. students who have been in the class for a while and they've got they you know they've got it and they're helping but the thing i really wanted to say is that they're helping each other out in ways that i never could have anticipated mm. and um I don't know. I've said this to you a million times, but I love teaching in Zoom. It's so much better than um, that live classroom instruction. Mm -hmm. If if we go back to the way it was before, before COVID, and we start and people start offering live LSAT classes again, yeah, I guarantee you your live LSAT class sucks compared to what I'm doing in Zoom right now. There's no (laughs) fucking way your Kaplan class in Omaha is going to be. It's not even going to touch what what we're doing in in Zoom. And it's not just me either, because I mean, all of our other teachers are killing it as well. Yeah. Um, Well, it was fun to teach. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say it was fun. Just piling on here, but it was fun to teach that personal statement workshop with you. And it was like, every time I look back at the chat, it's like 77 new comments. I'm like, uh, okay, I can't digest all this. Yeah. You got to have some help, you know, like Stella does a kick-ass job helping me monitor the chat in, in class. So if I miss something, she'll say, Hey, do you want to answer Jacqueline's question about whatever? And I'll go, Oh yeah, thank you. You know, go back and, and actually answer that. Um, I'm hearing a lot these days. There's this like, people just make blanket statements. Of course, I'm guilty of that as much as anybody else or more, but Mm -hmm. people, you hear a lot of people saying online education sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm willing to buy that online education sucks for five-year-olds, like teaching kindergarten online. My sister is a kindergarten teacher and teaching kindergarten online indeed is a nightmare. Yeah. And maybe even teaching seventh graders. We had a, a student in class last night who teaches uh, seventh and eighth graders. And he was like, you could tell that he was like shell shocked from trying to teach these kids online. And so I'm willing to buy that teaching, you know, kids with behavior problems online might suck. Teaching LSAT students online is vastly better than trying to teach LSAT students in a live classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody saves so much time. You're able to yep. stay focused because you're in your own controlled environment. You don't have to hear other people chewing ice. You don't have to smell <laughs> each other's weird food. You don't have to jockey for position in the classroom. There's no bad seat in the house. You know, there's nobody who can't see. There's nobody who can't hear. You don't hear yeah. any distraction, chitter chatter. And then you actually have the chat where people are hugely 
really helpful to each other. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, it's better in a million. Oh, if you need to take a break, you, you just hit, leave. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know, everybody's on mute. And you, if you need to what, do whatever you got to do, turn off your camera, go do whatever you got to do. Come back eight minutes later. You didn't miss anything. It's totally fine. Oh, and if you did, it's automatically recorded and you can just watch it right after the class. So <laughs> just, I can't, my life has been vastly, my teaching life has been vastly better post COVID. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have just moved everything online. It's so much better. Anyway. Yeah. That was a lengthy tangent. Um, <laughs> Sarah, thank you very much. Sorry for shitting on both of your ideas about the LSAT. Congratulations on your 174. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. Imagine how well she would have done without these bad ideas about the test. Um, okay. Next one. Mm-hmm. Part-time or not part-time? Hi, Nathan. Oh, this came to me, I guess. Um, hope you're doing great. Not sure if you answer questions here, but I figured I would give it a shot. Oh, yeah. Um, this was somebody just emailed this to me, and I, I said, okay, let's answer on the show. <clears throat> so I forwarded it to ADOT. I am not a typical student, worked in retail for 10 years, and then went back to school for my undergrad and MBA full time. Okay. I have always joked I would be a lawyer in another life, but never put any real thought behind it because I didn't think it was attainable, but here we are. I would have to get my JD in a part-time program, and I am currently working as a legal administrator. I'm looking at Loyola Chicago and DePaul as they are both close to my home and work in my schedule. First question is, do people look down on part-time programs, as in getting a job after graduation? Second question, I know you said to wait until the next cycle if you are past the August cutoff LSAT, but if I am most likely going to have to pay for it regardless, does it matter? Am I crazy to try to go to law school at 34? Let me know your thoughts. Thanks. Ashley. There's a few different questions there, Ben. You want to tackle one or more of them? Yeah. So I was thinking about the first one. Do people look down on part-time programs as in getting a job after graduation? I don't know. But my also my reaction is if you have to do part-time, don't worry about that. I think so much more matters on how well you do in school and whether you follow the advice of, uh, what was her name? Rachel Gezersay and just Start networking. Get out there. If you do that and you're in the nighttime part nighttime part-time program and people generally look down on that, you're going to overcome whatever negative effect that bears on your process. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't think it's a, a factor to consider. I think it varies wildly school by school too, right? I mean, there might be some schools. I mean, there certainly are some schools where the part-time program is more prestigious than the day program, or at least they have harder, um, like higher LSAT and GPA numbers. Mm. I can't imagine it being bad to go to the part-time program at one of those schools where the credentials of the students are actually higher. I, at other schools, I mean, it's possible that there are some schools where the part-time program is looked down upon, but that's going to vary community by community. And you, you know, you, you need to meet people, you need to meet alums of the program you're thinking about going to. Like yeah. talk to the school, tell them, hi, I want to do X, Y, Z type of legal work. 
I want to talk to one of your alums from this program that I'm thinking about going to. I want to talk to one of your alums who did does this work. And if they can connect you to those people, then obviously people don't look down on those part-time programs. If they can't connect you to those people, then maybe that school can't help you reach your goals. Yeah. That's kind of blanket advice, no matter what program you're thinking of, whether it's full-time or part-time. Yeah. And just to clarify, that book by Rachel Gezersay is the Law Career Handbook or something like that. Playbook, maybe. Yeah, it's got like but, templates for how to reach out to people, scripts for you know, calling random cold calls for people or cold emails. It's definitely worth, yeah, the 15 bucks or whatever. Yeah, 15 or 20 bucks. Yeah, seriously. Yep. Um, the second question, I know you said to wait until the next cycle if you are past the August cutoff LSAT. But if I am most likely going to have to pay for it regardless, does it matter? Why are you assuming that you're going to have to pay for it regardless? You just need to work longer on your LSAT. You take that extra time to push up your LSAT score, it is gold. It is literally gold. It's money. Not every um, part-time program offers scholarships, I think, but it's all on the 509 reports. And Mm -hmm. many part-time programs do offer um, full rides or even full rides plus. So why... Yeah, I don't understand this assumption that you have to pay. Uh, if you're assuming you have to pay, I, I would think you probably just shouldn't go. The tagline of the show is "Don't pay for law school." <laughs> if you have to simple. pay, if you have to pay part time, but you can get a scholarship full time, then go full time. It's probably worth it. Yeah. Totally. How much money do you make at your job? I mean, <laughs> free tuition to law school is very likely more than you make or, you know, cause it, you could flip it, right. You could like go full time on a scholarship and then 10 bar instead of working full time and paying tuition to go to a part-time program. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. People do, I think need to be a little more flexible with their ideas. I was yelling last night, Ben at, at the class, you know, cause I get it a lot where people are like, they just insist that they have no geographic flexibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what do you do when your career office at UC Hastings tells you as a 1L that there's no way you're going to get a job in the Bay Area when you graduate and that you need to start applying to law firms in Fresno? Like, think it through, you know, I mean, you got it's like, it, the, the reality is if you're trying to build a legal career, you might have to move to get the job you want. Yeah. You know, like this is obviously a Chicago resident and Chicago is a big place and there's lots of jobs in Chicago, but I don't know that Loyola Chicago or DePaul are going to guarantee you, you know, lucrative legal work in Chicago. So Ashley's being like super stuck on law school in Chicago, (laughs) but she might find out three or four years from now that if she actually wants a job practicing, She's going to end up moving to not Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, it doesn't have to work out that way. Certainly some people do go to law school in Chicago and work in Chicago. I just think people need to, if you're serious about law, you, you probably need to be willing to make some sacrifices um, or you need to be willing to put your career first. How about that? Yep. Or think outside the box. I mean, there's so many. Basically, what you're trying to do is solve a problem, and there are so many solutions to right. whatever problem it is. 
you're trying to make money, you're trying to find fulfillment in your career, or you feel stuck in Chicago because of some family situation, start thinking about it. Like, what? who needs what and where? Do you need to come back and visit? Like, do you really need to be there? Do your kids have to stay in the same school district? There are so many assumptions we just all walk around The with. semesters are only 14 weeks long, right? I mean, you actually only have to be even if they do require you to go to class, which of course isn't happening in COVID times, but it, it, even if they do require you to, to go to class, it's two 14 week semesters per year. That's 34 weeks out of 52. Um, yeah, you have to show up for your finals, but you know that's like three exams during a eight day exam period. And so and at least be open to, to possibilities that you weren't thinking about, right? At least consider applying to a school that's two hours away. You, you're not obligated to do anything once you applied. Apply, see what happens. Maybe they make you some crazy offer. Maybe it turns out to be worth it. Yeah. Okay. Do you think she's crazy to go to law school at 34? Oh, um, no, not at 34. I think it's getting up there and I would really just question your desire to go to law school. But since you're a legal administrator, I'm assuming that you are seeing the kind of work that you're going to get involved with. So I'm a little more confident in your decision than someone else who might be in like marketing and has decided at age 34 to go to law school. But regardless, you got to make sure you like what those lawyers do at your firm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're any crazier than everyone else who's like, it is crazy to go to law school in many, (laughs) many cases. It's just like, what are you even getting yourself into? It's insane. Mm -hmm. Um, but because you work in, yeah, because you're already working in a firm, um, you know what you're getting yourself into. So name a lawyer whose career you're trying to replicate, you know, who, who you, you're like, yep, this lawyer, they went to DePaul, I'm going to go to DePaul because I want to do exactly what that lawyer does. If you can do that, then I don't think it's crazy. Yep. If you can't, I think you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Like people are just in in many, many cases, people are just buying a dream, right? They just, they have Mm -hmm. no idea what lawyers do. They're going to just go to law school, name a lawyer whose career you're trying to replicate. And they're like, well, Barack Obama is a lawyer. Ha ha ha. You know? And it's like, yeah, okay. You're not doing that. (laughs) <laughs> let's be <laughs> let's be real about what you're actually going to do. Yeah. But then the age thing, who cares? I mean, you know, law is a thing that you can easily practice law until you're 90. Right? There's just no heavy lifting involved. <laughs> There's long hours involved. <laughs> There's making your work the primary focus of your life involved. But if you're willing to do those things, then age, I don't know, just seems kind of irrelevant. All right. Yeah. I was just looking up uh, Alan Dershowitz, for example. He's kind of notorious. But uh, yeah, he was born in 1938. And I think he was just testifying before the Senate, like with the impeachment stuff a couple years ago. So yeah. he's practicing. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, ready to dive into this uh, next email? Yeah, so this is from Joe Turk. Okay. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Longtime listener and LSAT Demon user here. The last time I wrote into the show, you both helped me answer some general questions regarding how to incorporate my experience in Division I football 
into my per- personal statement. Okay, apparently that's episode 241. If it helps, ring a bell. I also wrote about going blind in one eye during my sophomore year. Oh, I do kind of remember that. Thank you for the helpful advice. My next question has to do with my a GPA addendum. My LSAC GPA is a 3.84. Nice. And over the course... Yeah, nice. And over the course of my undergraduate years, my GPA shifted only slightly every semester. 3.9, 3.8, 3.7, 4.0, etc. However, despite finishing with a cumulative GPA of a 3.82, in the final semester of my senior year, I received a 3.4. I know this isn't a bad GPA, but considering it is a slight drop relative to my past semesters, as well as your guys' repeated emphasis on finishing your undergraduate years strong, do you think it's worth writing an addendum? I would. My immediate reaction to this is no. And ad- the point of an addendum is to bring attention to something. And so if someone has a low GPA and then they have a higher GPA, what you're doing is you're bringing attention to the higher GPA in the later semesters. Here, what are you going to do? Talk about how your GPA was higher in your first semesters? I don't think... I don't think I would talk about this. You? Well, I mean, yeah, 3.84 LSAC GPA. I was just going to look up a 509 for, um, you know, 509 Michigan law. Michigan is a top 14 school. Um, Everyone would agree. One of the best law schools in the country their 25th percentile GPA is 3.56. Their 50th percentile GPA is 3.81. 75th is 3.88. So your GPA is between the 50th and 75th percentile. It's better than average at one of the best law schools in the country. A 3.82, 3.82, wait, no, LSAC GPA, 3.84. Yeah, so you're, I mean, you're, whatever, you're above their 50th percentile. You're almost at their 75th percentile. And now you're going to write an addendum that says, hey, look, I got bad grades my last semester, but I'm going to make an excuse for it. I don't think they really care, right? Because at the end of the day, they only have to report the 3.84. Yeah. No, your grades are good for them. We only want to acknowledge a bad semester if our grades already are kind of bad. Right. And we want to, and then we're going to make the case hey, look, my grades would be so much better if not for this one semester where something beyond my control happened. And usually you want those good grades to come from a later semester because the argument right. is this is who I am now, not who I was. Right. Right? They're not going to look at your last semester and go, oh, look, this guy, you know, he's going <laughs> to discount his. They, they get to report your 3.84. They don't give a yeah. fuck about that 3.4 in the last semester. Yeah, absolutely do not. And you know what? If he also, I mean, if he did, I can't remember, but if he actually talked about the blindness in his personal statement, mm-hmm. and then he also is writing an addendum about a torn ACL and being in a bad place mentally and physically, don't. They now don't it's going to sound like losing. In, yeah, they don't want people in a bad place. They want people in a good place. <laughs> They're not trying to bring problems to their school. So the more problems you tell them about, the more they're just going to be like, hey, you know, hmm, eh, let's just pass on this one. They told us about two separate physical ailments. You know, that's like your grandma, who the only thing she talks about is her doctor's appointments. People don't 
I love my grandma, but I don't, nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Joe clear, clear pass on, uh, talking about this last semester. You want to just read the PS? Yeah, the PS. I've raised my diagnostic score of a 147 to consistently scoring in the high 160s now. Wow. Good. That's good. That will help you a lot. I attribute this increase to the demon as well as the podcast. More specifically, though, I thank you both for the unparalleled instruction slash explanations. I don't know what I would have done without you guys. Oh, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Good I luck. mean, you did the work, yeah. Joe. So yeah. I also um, get greedy, Joe. Shoot for the one seventies. If you man, you get that into the one seventies with your three point eight four, you could literally be talking about Stanford. Mm-hmm. So you know, one forty seven is a great starting score. You've improved by twenty points already. That's awesome. But we have seen people improve by 25 or 30 points. And, um, you know, another handful of points could be the difference between Michigan, great school, or Harvard. Um, By the way, if you get into Harvard, you should turn it down and go to Michigan for a full ride and a stipend. But, yeah, um, that's awesome, Joe. All right. Last email. Update from Gap Year Curious Beth. This must be a previous correspondent follow up for Ben and Nathan. If they are interested after listening to your advice, I am 100% taking a gap year. I took my July LSAT and performed poorly. I got a 155. Yikes. That's about 10 points lower than I had been performing on my diagnostics. Yeah. I think hmm. So definitely retake. Unfortunately, yeah. I received news the night before the test administration that I had lost a family member. Oh, I just wasn't in the right headspace. Yeah, that's what withdrawing is for, man. Yeah. Everybody. Maybe she wasn't even in the right headspace to make that call. Yeah. Yeah. But we should, I don't know. This is like almost part of the preparation, right? Mm -hmm. You have an option to withdraw up to the night before the test or the day before the test. You can go onto your LSAC account and you can withdraw. If you withdraw, you get at the last minute you get no refund, but it also doesn't show up on your score record. Doesn't Mm -hmm. count as one of your attempts. It's just as if you were never registered. And I mean, Hey, if your family member dies the day or two before the test, that's a clear withdrawal. You you just, (laughs) there are more important things than the LSAT. And it's too bad that uh, Beth didn't just walk away. Um, that said, schools only care about your highest score. So whatever. Whatever. Yep. I know this score is not representative of what I am capable of. I am going to get back to studying and start using the demon this time around. I will possibly write an addendum stating these circumstances, but I'm already writing one about the semester that I got B's and messed up my 4.0. I had some unresolved medical issues and missed several weeks of school. Don't write two addendums. Now you're going to just be like a string of excuses. I don't even know if you need to write the one about. That's what I was going to say. Don't even write either. Don't write either one of these addendums. Like you got to think about what the schools actually want. They want your LSAC GPA and they want your LSAT score, your highest LSAT score. So this 155 where your family member died and you weren't in the right headspace, that's not what they're buying. They're buying the 165 or the 170 that you'll eventually get 
when you're in the right headspace. In short, when you give them that 165, they're not going to care about the 155. Exactly. And so then all you're going to do is like say, hey, also look at this lower score. And that's when my grandma died and I wasn't in a good headspace. And they immediately are like, whoa, I don't want to hear about your dead grandma. And I also question your judgment for taking the LSAT when your grandma had just died. And like, it's just, it's negative. I don't see what good can possibly come out of that. Well, same thing here with this, the semester that I got B's and messed up my 4.0. I mean, I'm to understand that you probably have like a 3.85, right? Yeah. <laughs> you and Joe are in the same boat. And now mm-hmm. you're like, well, but also look at this semester where I got B's. I had some unresolved medical issues and I had to miss a whole bunch of school. And now they're like thinking, okay, so this is somebody who you know, they've got a lot of talent, you know, boy, we were about to admit her because she had a 3.9, but now she's telling us about these unresolved medical issues. And one time she had to miss a whole big chunk of school. And is that going to happen again? Is that going to happen when you're right. in your second semester of your first year? What's going to happen when you come here? Yeah. You don't want the, think about the messages you're telling them. If you send both of these addendums now, all of a sudden, instead of, Oh, She's a 3.85 and a 170 automatic admit. Now it's like, well, she's a 3.85 and a 170. We'd love to have her, but she's telling us about her dead grandma. She's also telling us about this medical problem and she had to miss a bunch of school. It's like you're all you're doing with these addendums, addenda, all you're doing here is muddying the waters. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you're giving them reasons not to admit you. You're giving them reasons to doubt these addenda should be reserved for if you're trying to spin bad news into good. Yeah, <laughs> what you're doing all, here is you're like spinning good news into bad. Yeah. That's what Joe was trying to do too. I, I get it. I think that people feel like if others can understand what they went through, they'll sympathize with them and they'll, but that's just not how it works. It, you you got to put yourself in the position of the law school trying to put together an A team. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, I, I know I didn't score as much in that one game, but that's because I was in this bad headspace. And all of a sudden they start judging, should you have been in bad headspace? Should you, you know, and you're just bringing attention to something that's negative when the vast majority of your application is positive. Just yeah. keep them focused on that. Yeah. Lawyers inherit, like just naturally, lawyers are going to make the argument on both sides. So even if they do feel sympathy for you, even if they are like, oh, yeah, wow, okay. So, you know, we can totally discount the 155 because her grandma had died. And we can totally discount this one semester because she had these medical issues. But the lawyer in them is going to go, well, let's think about what the other side would say. Because the other side would say it was an error of judgment for you to take that LSAT when your family member had died. What kind of a monster are you that you still are going to go take the LSAT even after your family member had died? I'm not making that argument. That's an argument that could be made, <laughs> right? And, so, and it's like, or in the same thing, like, oh, really? Oh, so unresolved medical issues and you're going to use that as an excuse for a bad semester? Why didn't you just withdraw? Why is this still on your record? Do I even believe that you had these unresolved medical issues? You know, oh, what was that? A drug problem? Like (laughs) they just, you got to think about what the negative, (laughs) because I assure you that lawyers looking at these arguments are going to be thinking about it from both directions, not, not the direction that is, solely beneficial to you 
but also they're going to think about the other interpretation of those same facts. So just be careful. I mean, this is, this is an example of like just people talking too much, right? Like you've got a good LSAT, you've got a good GPA, write a good personal statement, get a couple of letters of recommendation. You're in. Yep. You know, don't give them excuses not to admit you. Okay. Also, I showed my parents the podcast and they were thrilled. I guess none of us realized I was capable of going to a T14 school because I go to a state college. We are going to begin working out the logistics of taking a year off and I will be applying for internships to keep myself occupied during the fall and spring semester that I would be out of school. Mm. Thanks again, Beth. Are you thinking she um, should get a job? Uh, no, I'm actually thinking that there is one major project that she has not yet completed. The LSAT. The LSAT. You're, you're fantasizing about a T14 and fantasizing about, you know, making big plans for the rest of your future before you have your LSAT score on record can be a mistake. Now I'm not saying that you need to study for the LSAT full time. Not, not by any means. I just want to make sure that as you and your family are getting super excited about the prospect of you going to, um, Michigan or wherever, uh, you really do need that 170. seems like you're capable of it. Your diagnostic or your, your practice tests were up into the mid one sixties. Mm-hmm. If you really prepare this time, you should be thinking about bumping that up into the one seventies. And that really should be the primary, not to say that it's going to consume your whole life, but I really, I mean it when I say I want your best hour a day, you know, like let's structure your life even if you're not LSAT studying full time, let's, if you have the opportunity to do so, let's structure your life around the LSAT. Mm -hmm. At least, at least decide that that's the first thing every day or the most important thing every day. Um, and once you're done with it, you're done with it forever. But until you're done with it, it needs to be your focus. So all this logistics of taking a year off and stuff, I, I don't know. That seems like putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. I know you got to hit the road, Ben. So we'll uh, wrap it up there. Join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. We have pages at LSAT Demon and at Thinking LSAT. You can follow at Thinking LSAT and at LSAT Demon on Instagram. Um, follow at NFox. That's me on Twitter. I actually do use Twitter. Follow at Thinking LSAT on Twitter. We got all the social media, man. YouTube, uh, we have two channels. We have a Demon channel, uh, LSAT Demon channel, and a Thinking LSAT channel on YouTube. Uh, our websites are lsatdemon.com and thinkinglsat.com. All sorts of good stuff on those two sites. That was episode 261 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. Ha <laughs> ha